Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we learned about a novel effort to feed the hungry in our city, discussed the troubled legal history of the American reservations, and heard new music from one of Chicago's best bands. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for September 5th, 2020. I-94 chatted with David Heska Wombly Wyden, author of Winter Counts, Wyden, a member of the Lakota tribe, discussed the brutal legal climate members of America's indigenous population live under and how the federal system has conspired to disenfranchise tribal members. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature Show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Today, we are very thrilled to have the author David Heska Wanbley Wyden. He is a member of the Sichangu Lakota Nation, and he's got a new book that was actually just released, I think, this week, right, Mike? Last week. We could wow, go today. last week, and it's getting a lot of press. It's called Winter Counts. He joins us through the miracle of technology. Dave, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So Winter Counts is a new book, and it's a it's a piece of genre fiction. I kind of like to start there, actually, because uh, as regular listeners of the program know, uh, members of my family actually write mysteries and, and detective novels, and uh, I write detective short fiction as well. Uh, I wanted to start out and ask kind of what was attractive uh, about this genre to tell this story, which is heavily grounded, I think, in your own background in the Lakota Nation and takes place in, in that nation and, and discusses a lot of things that are going on in the indigenous community here in the United States. Yeah, so the, the, the back story on this is in my day job, I'm a professor of Native American studies in uh, Denver. And so I've been aware of the political trends and political law, you know, the laws and legal developments for, for many years. And, you know, I'm sure it's not a surprise to anybody listening to this that there are a lot of laws of the U.S. government that have severely disadvantaged American Indian people. So I started writing fiction about 12 years ago, and I did my MFA at the Institute of American Indian Arts, where I studied with a lot of really superstar, wonderful indigenous writers. And because of my knowledge of the criminal justice system on reservations and the way that it's really just a broken system, there's no other way to describe it, I thought that crime was the natural fit. Plus, I love crime fiction. It's It's been my favorite genre you know, for years. So so crime novel really was the way to tell this story, to expose the flaws in the criminal justice system on reservations. Well, before we kick into the, the plot and the actual book, Dave, will you tell us, so in the book, it, it talks a lot about felony convictions on uh, Native American soil and how the federal government doesn't prosecute um, except unless it's a big name crime or a, you know a, you know uh, what we call in Chicago you know like a an expensive zip code murder or something like that you know um, a very Chicago term and then <laughs> why you know why um, Virgil Wounded Horse has his job his uh, enforcer job can you go into a little bit because I was unaware of that I know that I knew there were tribal laws and I knew there was police but I didn't know how that all worked and it was very informative. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. No, I'll, I'm delighted to give sort of the setup to the book. It's a law of the U.S. Congress called the Major Crimes Act. So the Major Crimes Act passed in 1885 is a law that says Native American nations on their own territory, their own lands, sovereign independent lands, may not prosecute violent felony crimes. So if they catch a criminal say, abusing a little girl or raping a woman or committing a murder, they can apprehend the offender, 
they must then contact the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office and hand the offender over to them. Now, all of that is well and good, except for the fact that the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office are declining to prosecute anywhere from one-third to one-half of all of these cases. So what happens is these offenders are simply released back out into the wild to go out and commit more crimes. So this has contributed to a real atmosphere of lawlessness on some reservations, and it's, it's outrageous. I did publish an essay, a, a scholarly essay, on this July 19th in the New York Times where I ex explore this you know, in a non-fictional sense. Um, now, what that means for the book is there has sprang up a, uh, a class of professional enforcers. So if somebody's hurt your little kid or your sister or your mother, and the feds are just letting the guy go free, you want some justice. And there are people on reservations who will go out and beat the crap out of folks for a, for a price. They are professional enforcers, professional vigilantes, if you will, and that is the hero of my book, Virgil Wounded Horse. But it's all because of this really outrageous law passed in 1885, and I just want to get in there before I forget to mention this, that any attention that I get from this book, um, I am using, I've been in contact with a native legal organization, and I, we are starting an effort to try to get the Major Crimes Act of the U.S. Congress uh, amended, if, if not terminated altogether. So I'm hoping that this book will have a positive effect in real life. That's great. So let me, let's just back up here for a second, because I, I think this is really fascinating. The, the world you're talking about here, and, and I don't think any of us, you know, really were aware of, of this, um, seems to be very much like the old West, you know, uh, lawless with, you know, locally hired sheriffs in a sense, if you will to do jobs that the federal government is is apparently unwilling to do. What was the reason, first of all, that this law came in? And, and second of all, I, I would think it's got to be deeply worrying for um, members of, of these indigenous communities that they have to resort basically to hired thugs. I mean, it's very romantic from, from my point of view to have, you know, uh, you know, Sam Spade, you know, Phil Marlowe walking around, you know, something. you know, doing right. But I think in, in actual practice, uh, this has to be a pretty, uh, scary thing. Uh, you know, because this is, as you, you know, vigilante justice. Yeah, let me let me answer both of those. I'll I'll give the short version as to why this law was passed. So the law was passed in the late 1800s because of the murder, interestingly enough, of one of the great leaders of my nation, Chief Spotted Tail. Now, again, intriguingly enough, he is my great 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 uncle by marriage. I'm not related to him by blood, but I am related to him by marriage. So he was the great leader of my nation. Uh, we're officially known as the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. In our language, we're called the Sichangu Lakota Oyate, Sichangu Lakota people. And Spotted Tail was the great leader of our nation. A quick side note, I did just publish a children's book about him uh, last year in 2019. So Spotted Tail was our great leader. He was murdered uh, by one of his own people, uh, Crow Dog. And um, so... Back then, Native people could prosecute their own crimes. Now, our way of justice involves more reparations and trying to make the situation whole, trying to make the victim or the victim's family whole. So the, the elders of the nation said, okay, we're going to banish Crow Dog, and he has to support the family of Spotted Tail and, and pay some money and, and give a horse. And everybody was fine with this arrangement, except for the Americans, who hated it, because... 
Western colonial justice is obviously more about retribution and sanctions. And they, they stepped in. They said, oh, heck no. And they arrested Spotted, uh, a crow dog for the murder of Spotted Tail and, and tried him and sentenced him to death. Well, he has an attorney, uh, a, a white attorney, who takes the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court rules in favor of the Lakota people and says, look, this is an independent nation. They've got the right to prosecute their crimes as they see fit. Okay, and so the, the problem is the Congress was outraged by this, the U.S. Congress, and said this is outrageous, and they immediately passed the Major Crimes Act, which took away the right of Native nations to ever again prosecute most felonies that occur on Native lands. So all that long story, by this one random murder, it set off a chain of events that resulted in the passing of this law. Now to come to your second part of your question, it is outrageous. Uh, Native people, um, we have exceptionally high crime rates. People, you know, not just from the reservation, but people in surrounding communities will come and commit crimes uh, on Native lands. I, In my New York Times essay, I note that it's a virtual open season on Native women to be raped because they know that they're unlikely to be caught. And if they are, it's likely that the case will be tossed out. So it is a terrible thing. And it's it's a real thing. It's not fiction. So thus the rise of the professional vigilante. Were you? Did you do up close and personal research for it? For did you did you talk to people who had this role on reservations? No, I have never spoken to a vigilante myself. But I I, I spoke to people that know them. Um, I I did travel back to my reservation and sort of got the general picture. But I do have to be honest. I didn't. Uh, this is something that is done very much in the shadows. Okay. So I did, yeah, I did not speak to a professional enforcer myself, but I got enough information that I felt I could create a a, a realistic picture. Now, obviously I've dramatized it in in the book. Virgil wounded horse is troubled by the moral and ethical implications of what he's doing. And so he, he, he really struggles with that. And also with his Lakota identity, he's what's known as an Ayeska, which is a slur for half breed. And so that's part of the book as well. But I, I will stop there. I wanted to ask, so are these vigilantes, does everybody know? Or is it like, do you got to go to a guy to figure out who it is? Or how, you know, it, I, I, the thing I'm thinking of is like the mafia, like if you need somebody whacked or something. And I know that's Hollywood and it's a bit of a, you know, exaggeration of, of what goes on on the reservations. But is that how it works? I'm just curious. I can only speak for my own nation. I, I, you know, there are almost 600 native nations in America. A lot of people don't know this. I can only speak for my own. We are very much like a a big, small town. You know, we have only a few thousand or maybe 10,000 people living on our reservation. Pretty much everybody knows each other. Everybody knows everybody else's business. So pretty much everybody knows who's, who's willing to do these sorts of jobs and tasks, if you will. Um, and if you didn't know, you would just have to maybe put out a, a, a few calls and and you would you would find the person. But it may very well operate differently on the Diné Reservation, the Navajos, which is massive. So I can only speak to my own.
Chuck Mertz chatted with Work Perlstein about American conservatism's realignment around Ronald Reagan. The author of Reaganland, America's Right Turn, shows how Republicans rallied around the former movie actor on a path that ultimately led them to elect a reality TV star. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10. Historian Rick Perlstein is the author of the new book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. You can find out more about Rick at his website, rickperlstein.net, and you can follow Rick on Twitter, at Rick Perlstein. Welcome back to This is Hell, Rick. Oh, my God, Chuck. <laughs> I feel like I'm at home. I just, I just, I feel I'm coming home, man. I feel like I just, like, slipped in, like, the most, like, warm, comfortable <laughs> bath. The darker you got... I guess can I, I got a, okay. So I just did an interview, I won't name his name, but with an extremely prominent establishment figure. Okay. A TV interview that will appear on a certain network <laughs> and it was hell. <laughs> it was 30 minutes of me trying to cleverly be simultaneously polite and sell my book and push back on his establishment consensus insistence that Reagan restored confidence to America and that the Democrats don't understand that people don't want raping and pillaging in the streets. And (laughs) it was very hard work. And um, I don't know. And I just like me and my wife just bought a lake cabin in the middle of Illinois. And we were really (laughs) terrified that um, we would be surrounded by fascists. But our real estate Agents started talking about how wonderful that Mary Trump is, and the sun broke over the horizon. And I just can't even tell you how happy I am to be here right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how, so how do you enjoy your appearance on the Lawrence O'Donnell show? <laughs> was not Lawrence O'Donnell. Damn it! Damn it! I was thought I, I was trying. I was trying. You got it. You got to admit it. I spoke from a, a, a colonial mansion that looked like the White House. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, do you? I, I can't even get, I, I, I just, you know, I mean, what can I tell you? I, I can't, um, I got to protect my brand, you know, and not, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> you know what you got to do is you got to start getting, you got to start getting uh, Rick Perlstein truckers caps and getting a whole swag shop at your site. That's what you need to be doing. I do have a swag shop. I have four items for sale. <laughs> Actually, my first book is no longer for sale because they ran out and the only new copy of Before the Storm is available for $950 on Amazon. <laughs> But supposedly they're getting a new one soon. Uh, so yeah, that's the swag I needed to buy. Let's go dark, man. All right. So I, I want it darker. All right. So I uh, I just want to start with a really general question because following the election of Barack Obama as president of the United States in November 2008, we had guest effort after guest on our show saying that progressive Democrats needed to continue that momentum to pressure the new Obama administration to come through on things like universal health care, ending the war on terror. We also had guests who were concerned that if the so-called left pushed Obama too hard, he would end up, and we had a few guests say this, he would end up a one-term president like Jimmy Carter. The implication being that Jimmy Carter was pushed too far to the left, and that was why he was not reelected. Is it accurate to say that the left pushed Carter too far, bringing about an eventual okay. Reagan administration? Give me, give me the names and addresses of those people so I can hunt them down. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy Carter. Uh Jimmy Carter, I, I, the way I put it is the Democrats managed to, you know, dominate Washington for decades um, on the principle, don't shoot Santa Claus, which basically meant, you know, use the might of the American economy and the, 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 the federal treasury to basically create programs uh, that build and support 
you know, the American middle class and um, Jimmy Carter's determination as president seemed to be to plug Santa Claus in the gut. Uh, so, you know, the first thing he did, does when he's uh, inaugurated is in between, after he's elected, he's sitting there in Plains, Georgia and studying, studying how to be president after this campaign in which basically he's, you know, all things to all people. Um, and he studies the report of the Army Corps of Engineers about federal water projects. And he puts on his engineer's cap, his nuclear engineer cap, and he comes up with 50 projects that he decides are not economically rational. And he announces unilaterally without consulting anyone, including his own interior secretary, who learns about this when he gets off a plane at a governor's conference, met by angry governors asking him uh, why Jimmy Carter is destroying their political careers. Uh, he cancels 50 dam projects. Um, and uh, with them, you know, all these jobs that go with building dams and all the patronage. And, and that was the beginning of four years of commitment to austerity and bite belt tightening and the conservative ideology that the reason we have inflation is that there's too much government spending uh, and, you know, retreating from supporting labor law reform and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, such that, you know, when the American working class goes to the polls in November of 1980, they have a choice between the guy who says uh, you're doing too well and the guy who says, I'm going to give you a 30% tax cut. Um, so um, it's not quite the way uh, that particular. I like to say that the people know seven or eight things about every presidential election, and three, three, three to four of them are wrong. That's definitely one of the wrong ones. Yeah, definitely. But it's, it, it's unfortunately when you hear like, I don't know, comedians or people like in a bar talking about the history of the Carter era, that's kind of where it falls. And you write Jimmy Carter would be the candidate, as you were just saying, for everyone. In his speech, he uh, fainted left, comparing Ford to Herbert Hoover, another, right. quote, decent and well-intentioned man who sincerely believed the government could not or should not, with bold action, attack the terrible and economic and social ills of our nation. He fainted right, saying when there is a choice between government responsibility and private responsibility. We should always go with private responsibility when there is a choice between welfare and work. Let's go to work. Then, and most importantly, he staked the claim as the candidate unconnect, unconnected to the corrupt legacy of Nixon. I owe the special interest nothing. I owe the people everything. Did voters project their hopes and their ideas of what change from Nixon Carter might bring about? Is that the same kind of projection that we saw when it came to supporters of Barack Obama? Did this set the foundation for that kind of projection of a politic who seems totally. to appeal to everyone? Totally. I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, Barack Obama, people projected that they were going to get like, you know, Hosea Bartlett from, you know, the West Wing, you know, and all the problems would kind of go away um, because we'd have this decent, honest man in the White House, right? So there's this scene in the first chapter of the book, which actually you can read on Amazon. They just, they just printed the first chapter, so you can kind of, you know, try before you buy. Um, uh, there's a wonderful memoir by the guy who did Gerald Ford's TV commercials uh, about the 1976 campaign. He tells this story that I relate in the book. He goes to his first strategy meeting in the White House for Gerald Ford's upcoming campaign against Jimmy Carter. And he says it's in the man, in the office of a man they only refer to as Mr. Cheney, who has a man-sized safe in the corner of his office. Uh, and uh, 
the, the pollster for, for Gerald Ford is a guy named Bob Teeter. Uh, he, 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 he has come up with something that he calls a perceptual map. And what this perceptual map consists of is a series of kind of clear acetate sheets uh, with scatter plots on them. And each plot represents you know, an individual poll voter, but each sheet is a different voting block. Right. So there's literally people who are for gun control, people who are anti gun control, you know, people who are uh, liberal on race, people who are conservative on race, you know, uh, labor, people in labor, people in business. And he just lays these sheets one over the other. And this like in this kind of cloud of dots, you know, it's all converges away from Ford and toward Jimmy Carter. Right. So he he manages Jimmy Carter to get elected by basically saying very little about what his policies were going to be and what he was going to do. So when he suddenly appears in the White House and, and basically makes it very clear that his fundamental idea about how to fix what's wrong with America is to go back to an attitude like it's World War II and we all need to kind of sacrifice and plant victory gardens, it's a complete shock you know, to the American people who have completely projected you know, their own ideas about who this guy was, right? I mean, the evangelicals flocked to him, and by 1980, they consider him the devil, right? Just to take, you know, one example. Uh, that's a, you know, terrible way to govern the country, because when you govern, you have to make decisions. And when you make decisions, you have to anger one side or another. And when everyone thinks you're on your side, he just kind of serially uh, alienates one constituency after another. Um, and, uh, the way he kind of tried to kind of bull through this contradiction was by a politics of symbolism, you know, uh, whether it was, you know, selling the White House yacht, you know, or, um, you know, putting in front of the cameras his daughter's uh, lemonade stand, this idea that he was this kind of ordinary, sincere, you know, uh, yeoman farmer, you know, um, and the media just like kind of picked him apart pick each one of these kind of uh, stories apart one by one. I always uh, bashed him for not uh, expressing enough austerity. Uh, so by 1980, he's got like, you know, a terrible economy. He's promising to increase the military budget by 20%. So, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan attacks him from the left <laughs> during the one debate uh, saying he's too militaristic. So if you want to kind of choose a, militari uh, a militarist, you know, on the on, uh, on the ballot, you know, the following Tuesday, are you going to choose the guy who says, you know, you have to tighten your belt or the guy who says he's going to give you a 30 percent tax cut and that 30 percent tax cut is going to create a miracle of loaves and fishes and, you know, heal the American economy and cause such massive economic growth that nothing is going to have to be cut at all. <laughs> Just, 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 hey, I, I need them bolt cutters of mine again. Kyle, we've been over this. No bolt cutters until you stop using them uh, to cut the lock off my bicycle. How dare you, Jessica? I wouldn't have to cut the lock if you didn't keep locking it up. Besides, how could I have stolen your bicycle if you still have it? Because all six times I caught you and I took it back. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, God knows what would happen if you got away with it. You don't even know how to ride a bicycle. What thievery are you up to now? Jess, I am softened by that remark. If truth be known, I am trying to secure myself gainful employment. With bolt cutters? With, 
with what is behind this fence over here on Morgan. Feast your eyes on the rarest of floor finds. Tree saws. This is an active construction site. I, I just saw these guys pop over to Saluri's for lunch. Well, it looks like it ain't that active then. Listen, just stand back and let me get to work over here. I have liberates them. Freedom is now mine. I still don't get this. It's very easy, Jess. Pulaski Savings Bank is always needing tree service, and with these tools, I can provide that service. And from that, I can parlay it into some fall-time haggerswaggle. Kyle, you're like 70 years old. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Tree cutting is arduous work. Are you sure you're physically up for this? I got some million-dollar marketing idea, so just sit back and watch. What are you jokers doing now? Oh, Kyle's trimming trees at the bank. They're giving him 60 bucks. Is he okay? He looks a little pale. Um, I think he might be having a heart attack, actually. Mm, that's just his regular clammy sweat and deathly complexion. You jagoffs can say what you want, but my treeway system is going to change the industry. <laughs> Your what? Yeah, it's my system to gin up business. All over Bridgeport are trees that need trimming. <laughs> Look at this. Look at this sign. How about a treeway? Are you serious? Absolutely. Watch this. Hey, you over there. How about a treeway? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> no, no, hey, How about no. a treeway? A treeway right hey, now. Can it, trucker? <laughs> uh, what's this about, a three-way? You got it, buddy. You're the first for my treeway system. Uh, with, with you and these guys? Uh, I, I'm not involved here. Oh. Oh, no, Jamie. You, you've made him sad. Ah, Look how sad he is. That's not very neighborly. How are we going to get this treeway system off the ground if yous don't help at all? Um, hey, this is your bright idea. I'm pretty sure it's against my religion. How is this my this idea? This is your idea because Jesus, you they'll be at it forever. Let's get back leave. to this treeway, Kyle. What exactly is this system? I'm so glad you asked. First, the thrusting. Uh, oh. Uh, as we cut across branches... Then there's the flexing. Oh. As we trim the branches, and then the final stroke oh. is to clean up the leaves. <laughs> well, I'm in. Your place or mine. <laughs> I got no trees in my place. That would be ridiculous. How about you just give us your address, and we'll be over soon. I'll be waiting. See, Jess, how easy was that to gin up business? You want to try? Um... Hey, how about a treeway? Treeway, want a treeway with us? Come on, just join in. Wow, so crazy. I have a, a different engagement a at Let's another oh, place, so Hannah. Don't try to pawn that recorder off of me. Treeway. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump applauds violence in American cities and tries to blame Biden. Trump calls Black Lives Matters protesters a coup d'etat against him, while the Department of Homeland Security tries to round their leaders up. Trump claims only 9,000 have died from COVID, and the Justice Department stopped an investigation by the FBI into Trump's deep Russian ties. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1,317, August 28th. Trump accepted the Republican nomination on the White House lawn in a sneering 72-minute speech that was notable for the litany of false claims and attacks made on his Democratic rival. Saying, quote, I'm here and they're not, while grinning in front of the White House, Trump claimed the nation is on the cusp of a takeover by violent anarchists who would exploit a weak Biden to destroy America. Quote, no one will be safe in Biden's America. 
Nearly 2,000 guests on the lawn were packed in rows of chairs with none wearing masks. When asked about the crowd, an aide said, quote, everyone is going to catch this thing eventually. Trump's speech was greeted by BLM protesters who could clearly be heard during the event chanting in the background. Also, thousands of demonstrators marched on Washington demanding an end to systemic racism to honor the 57th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream address. The Get Your Knee Off Our Necks commitment march convened hours after Trump's speech. Another 1 million Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week. In total, 27 million workers are now unemployed. More than 15 million are collecting benefits. Those numbers were a surprise and point to a continuing slowdown in the post-pandemic economy. Trump continued his campaign to damage mail-in voting, falsely claiming that officials, quote, are going to count them wrong. Quote, the problem is when they dump all these ballots in front of a few people who are counting them and they're going to count them wrong. They send these unsolicited ballots where they're going to send 80 million unsolicited ballots to people that they don't even know if they're alive or if they're living there. None of this is accurate. Trump and his staff sneered at the widespread protests in national sports over Black Lives Matter. Jared Kushner said the NBA players were, quote, very fortunate to be able to take a night off from work. Trump told reporters, quote, I know their ratings have been very bad because I think people are, are a little tired of the NBA. They've become like a political organization, and that's not a good thing. Mike Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short, called the protests absurd and silly, adding, quote, if they want to protest, I don't think we care. Every major sports league in America took Thursday and Friday off to protest the continuing police-involved shootings of unarmed blacks in America. Democratic presidential hopeful Biden made a forceful public speech claiming Trump had made the United States unsafe through his erratic and divisive governing. Republicans and Trump have falsely attempted to claim a Biden presidency would lead to lawlessness. The speech came against the backdrop of a summer of protests against Trump, quote, saying Trump is rooting for more violence, not less, because he thinks it benefits him politically. Biden also noted that under Trump's reign, more police have died from COVID-19 than from violence. Quote, this is his America. And according to a new book, Trump reportedly considered the idea of settling with Robert Mueller. According to that book, Donald Trump versus the United States, Trump told White House counsel Don McGahn, quote, there was nothing to worry about because if it was zeroing in on him, he would simply settle with Mueller. He would settle the case as if he were negotiating terms in a lawsuit. Day 1318, August 29th. The White House privately alerted seven Republican-led states in June that their coronavirus cases had put them in the red zone. That report was released by the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis. The risk assessments came at the same time Trump was insisting that the pandemic response was working and that Mike Pence had written an op-ed dismissing fears of a second wave of the coronavirus as, quote, overblown. Trump also claimed during that period the U.S. was, quote, corona-free. A federal judge has ordered the Trump administration and the U.S. Post Office to turn over documents about service changes that could undermine mail-in voting. U.S. District Judge Stanley Bottestine gave Trump 10 days to comply. 20 states and D.C. stewed over the changes made by Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. The Justice Department opposed the request, claiming much of the information is already on public record. The House Foreign Affairs Committee opened contempt proceedings against Secretary of State Mike Pompeo over, quote, his ongoing refusal to comply with a subpoena for records related to states' involvements in attempts to link Joe Biden to corruption in Ukraine. In a statement, the chairman, Elliot Engel, cited Pompeo's, quote, unprecedented record of obstruction and defiance of the House's constitutional oversight authority. 
An aide called Pompeo, quote, the worst and most corrupt Secretary of State in our nation's history. An official communique from the White House said it has compiled a, quote, very large dossier on Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter David Farenthold, calling him, quote, a disgrace to journalism and the American people. In that statement, the White House also accused the Washington Post of, quote, blatantly interfering in the business relationships of the Trump Organization and demanded, quote, it must stop. Farenthold has been doggedly reporting how much money the Trumps have put into their own pockets from the federal purse. Reporting this week, the Trump Organization charged taxpayers close to $1 million in fees related to Trump's 271 visits to his own property since he took office. And an ad from the Republican National Committee alleged to give viewers, quote, a taste of Biden's America, showing a street on fire. The street in the video was in Barcelona, Spain. Day 1,319, August 30th. One person is dead after a shooting in downtown Portland following skirmishes between pro-Trump and Black Lives Matter protesters. A far-right group known as the Patriot Prayer Boys had apparently been chased through the streets by counter-protesters in the latest episode of violence in American cities. The Patriot Prayer Group had incited that violence by driving a cordon of pickup trucks through the city and firing paintball guns at BLM protesters. Trump then publicly condoned that violence by his supporters, saying in part that the mayor of Portland was a fool. That was part of a barrage of tweets in which he also claimed the street protests are actually an organized coup d'etat against him. Trump shared a video on Twitter of the Trump Cruz rally, calling them great patriots. In another tweet, Trump referred to protesters in D.C. as disgraceful anarchists and said his administration is watching them closely. Trump also said the big backlash going on in Portland cannot be unexpected. The mayor of Portland is a fool, and then closed by saying the state needs to bring in the National Guard. White House Press Secretary Kayla McEnany tried to walk back Trump's comments, claiming he had not seen the video of his supporters using paintballs and pepper spray against protesters in Portland. Trump, in fact, himself tweeted out that video, and the caption of the video reads, quote, Trump people unload paintballs and pepper spray, they shot me. Trump's newest coronavirus task force member is urging the White House to embrace, quote, herd immunity as U.S. cases top 6 million. Scott Atlas, who is not a infectious disease expert or an epidemiologist, joined the White House earlier this month as a pandemic advisor. He has advocated the United States adopts Sweden's model, which public health officials and disease experts called reckless. The controversial strategy would require lifting social distancing restrictions and allowing the coronavirus to spread free. Sweden actually did not see benefit from this strategy and on a per capita basis suffered many more deaths as a result. Lieutenant Colonel Yevgeny Vidman filed a complaint with the Pentagon's Inspector General suggesting he and his brother Alexander were retaliated against for disclosing potential ethics violations by White House officials. Alexander Vidman was a key witness during Trump's impeachment. He was subsequently dismissed from his position on the National Security Council. The brothers were both removed after the impeachment proceedings in moves widely seen as payback. The Department of Health and Human Services are bidding out a $250 million contract to a consulting firm to, quote, defeat despair and inspire hope about the pandemic. An internal document says the bid, quote, will share best practices for businesses to operate in the new normal and is still confidence to return to work and restart the economy. The use of public money for what appears to be a nakedly political messaging campaign is expressly forbidden. 
The University of Pennsylvania is now investigating how Trump was admitted to that school in 1966. Niece Mary Trump's new book alleges that Trump paid someone to take his SATs and to sit the entrance exam to that school. And a judge ordered an Iowa County to invalidate 50,000 requests for absentee ballots. Trump's campaign sued its election commissioner over pre-filling those ballots with voters' personal information. Day 1,320, August 31st. An explosive new report says the Justice Department secretly took steps in 2017 to narrow an investigation into Russian election interference. That kept investigators from completing an examination of Trump's deep, decades-long ties to Russia. Numerous reports have concluded that Russia interfered in the 2016 election to aid Trump. Former Deputy Attorney General Ron Rosenstein, however, apparently short-circuited an investigation into Trump's financial ties to the Kremlin. He did not tell the FBI director. Acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf said Attorney General William Barr is, quote, working on conspiracy charges against leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement. During an interview with Tucker Carlson on Fox, Wolf said charging anti-fascists and leaders of the BLM movement with conspiracy under RICO is, quote, something I have talked to Barr personally about. Wolf said Barr was, quote, targeting and investigating the heads of those organizations, as well as those who are, quote, paying for those individuals to move across the country. Trump responded by calling companies such as Nike, Coca-Cola, and others who support the Black Lives Matter movement so weak. They're led by weak people. Trump added that he considered the movement's name so discriminatory. Trump unleashed an especially intense barrage of Twitter messages embracing fringe conspiracy theories, claiming the coronavirus death toll has been exaggerated and that the street protests are a coup against him. Trump posted or reposted 89 messages between 5.49 a.m. and 8.04 a.m. on Sunday. In the tweets, Trump called to imprison Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, threatened to send federal forces against demonstrators outside the White House, attacked CNN and NPR, embraced the supporter charged with murder, mocked his challenger, and repeatedly assailed the mayor of Portland, even posting the mayor's office telephone number so that his supporters could call, demanding his resignation. The nation's top intelligence officials told Congress they would no longer provide in-person briefings about election security. Posed as an attempt to, quote, prevent leaks, Congress reacted swiftly, calling the changes dubious. Lawmakers from both parties complained the move would block their ability to question and test assessments during what is expected to be a complex and divisive election. Meanwhile, as the U.S. passed 6 million infections and near 200,000 confirmed deaths, Trump claimed publicly that only 9,000 deaths had happened from the coronavirus. That claim, made in a tweet that also attacked Dr. Anthony Fauci, was swiftly removed by Twitter and labeled false. An attempt to short-circuit a judicial review of the Justice Department's highly unusual attempt to stop the prosecution of former Trump advisor Michael Flynn has been thrown out. Flynn has twice pled guilty to lying to the FBI. Judge Emmett Sullivan has signaled he believes Attorney General William Barr sought to drop Flynn's case for illegitimate reasons. The review will now decide if Flynn is to be sentenced. And the journalist at Voice of America accused its new Trump-appointed chief executive of McCarthyism and putting reporters in peril by suggesting that being a journalist is, quote, a great cover for being a spy. Day 1,321, September 1st. Trump traveled to Kenosha, Wisconsin, over the objections of the governor and the mayor. There he was greeted by protests on a trip also overshadowed by comments he made about police-involved shootings, comparing police who shoot civilians to golfers who choke on a three-foot putt. 
In the same interview, Trump claimed that, quote, people are in the dark shadows, are controlling the streets in Kenosha and other cities, and manipulating Joe Biden's campaign. When Fox News host Laura Ingram asked, quote, what does that mean, and added the statement, quote, sounds like a conspiracy theory, Trump claimed, quote, we had somebody get on a plane from a certain city this weekend, and in the plane it was almost completely loaded with thugs wearing these dark uniforms, black uniforms with gear and this and that. The matter is under investigation right now because a lot of people were on the plane to do big things. That lie was called, quote, too absurd to fact check by CNN. Trump defended the 17-year-old from Illinois who shot and killed two protesters. Trump said the video he had seen showed Kyle Rittenhouse, quote, trying to get away from them, I guess it looks like, and that protesters very violently attacked him. I guess he was in very big trouble. He probably would have been killed. In fact, video of Rittenhouse the protest shows him carrying an assault rifle and telling someone on the phone, I just killed somebody. Sheriffs then let him leave the scene of those crimes. Meanwhile, the family of Jacob Blake, the man shot seven times in the back by police in Kenosha, turned the corner where that incident happened into a festival in an implicit rebuke of Trump. Organizers of that said Trump was trying to use their city as a political prop and that he was only there to sow chaos and fear. Hundreds attended that festival with the Reverend Jesse Jackson also in attendance. Joe Biden reported a record-breaking month of donations in August, raising more than $365 million between his campaign and the Democratic Party. Many of the donations came from small donors and signals a new depth of support for the party in a pivotal election. Biden's haul is four times what Trump has raised in his best month. Trump waded into Big Ten football, claiming the conference would soon resume play. Conference coaches have been pushing to play in January, but Trump's claims came one day after Democrats began running ads in Michigan and Ohio, blaming his handling of the pandemic for stopping college ball. ESPN reports a Big Ten source told them, quote, nothing has changed, we're not playing. Trump denied that he had suffered, quote, a series of mini-strokes. His tweet was odd as no media outlets reported that Trump had had a series of strokes. Trump, however, tweeted, quote, it never happened to this candidate, fake news. Hours later, Trump's physician issued an official statement saying Trump has not had a stroke, mini-stroke, or a heart-related emergency. It is unclear what prompted this. Day 1322, September 2nd. Attorney General Bill Barr issued new rules restricting the use of government surveillance on elected officials and political campaigns. The FBI will now be required to get permission from the Attorney General before submitting applications to FISA courts. Barr also removed the head of a Justice Department office that ensures the legality of federal counterterrorism and counterintelligence activities. Brad Vigman, who was a 23-year-old career public servant and not a political appointee, was replaced by a political appointee, a former cybercrime prosecutor with little experience in counterintelligence. The administration has backed out of a $646 million deal to buy ventilators after a congressional investigation found evidence of fraud, waste, and abuse in the process. That deal was negotiated personally by White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro. A House committee has since opened a probe of all federal contracts negotiated by Navarro. Federal prosecutors are reportedly preparing to charge a longtime Republican fundraiser. Elliot Broidy is under scrutiny for his alleged role in the campaign to persuade Trump to drop an investigation of Malaysian government corruption. Broidy has also pushed for the extradition of an outspoken Chinese dissident to the mainland. Broidy has close personal ties to Trump as well. 
Trump also attacked the NBA again, saying, quote, people are tired of watching the highly political NBA. Basketball ratings are way down and they won't be coming back. I hope football and baseball are watching and learning because the same thing will be happening to them. Stand tall for our country and flag. In fact, baseball did take two days off with the NBA. NFL teams say they are also preparing large protests. Facebook removed 13 fake accounts and two pages associated with the Internet Research Agency. That is the same Russian group that interfered in the 2016 election. The IRA had created a fake news site called Peace Data and recruited U.S. and continental journalists to write articles targeting left-leaning readers. Trump's campaign dismissed Joe Biden's placement of campaign signs in the popular game Animal Crossing. Biden worked out a deal with the massively popular game to see campaign signs in the game on demand. Samantha Zager, Trump's deputy national press secretary, said, quote, This explains everything. Joe Biden thinks he's campaigning for president of Animal Crossing from his basement. And there still has been no Joe Biden boat parade. In a related story, the man who received thanks from Trumps for organizing those boat parades is accused of using anti-Semitic language and sending threatening messages to a Florida resident. Carlos Gavida was charged with sending a written threat to kill or do injury after surrendering himself to police. That offense is a second-degree felony that carries a prison sentence of 15 years. Day 1323, September 3rd. Trump sent a memo that ordered the federal government to begin the process of defunding New York City, Portland, Seattle, and Washington, D.C., calling them anarchist jurisdictions and claiming officials allowed lawless protests. Trump said, quote, my administration will not allow federal tax dollars to fund cities that allow themselves to deteriorate into lawless zones. All four cities have seen sustained protests against Trump. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York replied, calling it a stunt and noting that Trump does not have control over federal funding. Trump said the people in North Carolina should vote twice. Quote, let them send it in and let them go and vote. And if their system's as good as they say it is, then obviously they won't be able to vote. If it isn't tabulated, they'll be able to vote. So that's the way it is. And that's what they should do. Deliberty voting twice, of course, is a felony. The CDC has issued two new directives, one notifying local governments to prepare for a vaccine possibly as soon as October, and another halting the eviction of certain renters through the end of the year. The first heightened fears the Trump administration is seeking to rush a vaccine before Election Day. The second directive says renters must show they are likely to become homeless upon eviction. That ban runs through December 1st. The Department of Homeland Security apparently blocked a July intelligence document warning of Russian attempts to denigrate Joe Biden's mental health. That prompted new scrutiny of political influence at the department. Chad Wolf said he and other career officials at the office had questioned the quality of, quote, a very poorly written report. The bulletin, titled Russia Likely to Denigrate Health of U.S. Candidates to Influence 2020 Election, contained, quote, allegations about the poor mental health of the 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. The Biden campaign responded by directly accusing Trump of personally blocking the release of the sport, saying, quote, the Russian narrative aligns with Trump's own constantly backfiring attacks, claiming that Biden is not mentally competent to be president. And why would he do this? Because Russia and the Trump campaign are speaking from the same script of smears and lies. The Kenosha camera store owner whose burned down store Trump used as a backdrop this week accused him of using his shop for political gain under false pretenses. Tom Graham's century-old camera shop burned to the ground a week ago. Graham declined Trump's request to be part of his tour of damage on Tuesday. He was stunned, however, when a former owner of the shop was invited. That owner praised the president's efforts. 
The former owner had not been in the store for over a decade. And the EPA's relaxed rules meant to keep lead, selenium, arsenic, and other pollution out of rivers and streams. It is seen as an aid to the coal industry. Melania Trump regularly used a private email account while in the White House. Stephanie Winston Wolkoff said she corresponded multiple times per day with Trump through a private Trump Organization email account using iMessage, Signal, and an encrypted messaging app. And Trump told Sarah Sanders to go to North Korea and take one for the team after Kim Jong-un appeared to wink at her during a summit in Singapore in June 2018. When Sanders told Trump and John Kelly, then chief of staff, about the incident, Trump replied, Kim Jong-un hit on you. He hit on you. He did. That settles it. You're going to North Korea and taking one for the team. Sanders replied, sir, please stop. 50% of active duty service members have an unfavorable view of Trump. Joe Biden maintains a healthy lead over Trump heading into the campaign home stretch. New polls show no change after the conventions, nor after a week of attacks on Biden by Trump. Biden leads by eight points in a Grinnell College poll, by 10 points in Quinnipiac, seven points in USA Today, eight points in CNN, seven points by Reuters, and 11 points in a YouGov poll. Biden continues to run well ahead of where Hillary Clinton was in 2016. These are the Trump Diaries. Anya played a special showcase in Studio C on the eve of the pandemic. This is an excerpt from their forthcoming John Daly session. It was engineered by Corey Albritton and mastered by Stan Wood.
This is a WCYFM. And I know I speak for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable with many of the chemicals they put in their water or in the water, rather. I mean, mm -hmm. I say their water because I have my own uh, reverse osmosis system mm -hmm. carefully calibrated with a number of... That's neither here nor there. Um, well, I'm not I, comfortable well, with what gets put in. It will, yeah. And I'm also equally uncomfortable with the ones they don't take out. Where the, the, the... Interesting. R Rowan, what, what, kind of, what kind of things would you like... Would you like them to take out of, of the water? Well, so I am uh, aware, I've seen many studies, perhaps you've seen these studies too. I've seen many studies, yes. Of these trace amounts of uh, of medication uh, that work their way into the water systems. Okay. They're detectable even in the tap water just because they get recirculated. Um, and these are things like antidepressants, mm -hmm. um, antipsychotics, okay. um, even narcotics. I see. Can, Tra trace amounts in in all bodies of water, especially ones that are near near high population areas. Right, and there is being nothing to do, being done to address that issue. Um, and so, when I'm preparing a, an admixture to go on a spirit quest, how do I know that these substances in the water, these these psychogenic substances mm -hmm. in the water, aren't interfering right. with? the psychogenic substances I'd like there to be in the water that I'm ingesting. And Rowan, you're saying that these studies show that there are traceable amounts, not only traceable, but but large enough amounts in, inside of these water supplies to possibly have side effects with other medications that you are taking. Well, what I, the, the, what I do when I go on a spirit quest mm -hmm. involves... Um, very cutting-edge, bleeding-edge chemicals uh, that, that okay. are not fully understood right. or uh, quantified in a manner. So I don't know, but I want to know that when I'm doing these research chemicals, if you will, that they are acting on their own and not being interfered with with some other some other variable, some right. other factor. You're, you're I, trying you're you're trying to control your experiment and you can't. No, I, I, I cannot in good faith write an accurate trip report based off of my experimentations with the number of psychotropics that Simon Amy puts out if I think that the water that I'm drinking already has other chemicals in it that right. will be interfering. Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.